Amen. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Amen. All right. If you have your Bibles or your apps, turn to Mark chapter 4. And verse 35 through 41 is where we're going to spend the majority of our time today. And so, a few weeks ago, I was studying this scripture and some things jumped out at me that I think we, from time to time we need to be reminded. And this is a familiar story to most of us. If we've spent any time in the church, it's a story that you've, I'm sure you've heard many times. In verse 35, it starts out, That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he is, in the boat. And there were other boats with him. And a furious squall came up, and the winds broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him up and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified. And they asked each other, Who is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. We all know this story. I think most of us do. As a matter of fact, I could probably turn to Nick and say, Nick, how would you like to teach this lesson? And I know that you would do a really good job. And I'm confident that you'd be like, well, this is what I've heard. And it would be great. And I'm sure of that. Because we're so familiar with this story. And the problem with teaching a story like this is that sometimes you get ahead of the story. And you just start filling in the gaps as you go. And then you kind of get distracted. And then you tend to nod off. I'm watching you, Hank. Um, we kind of get tired because we know what is coming. As a matter of fact, I believe most of us would be able to bring the point home. The main point of this story is that Jesus calms the storm on the lake, and likewise, he calms the storm in your life. Right? Let's go. All right, let's pray. Jake, get him back up here. Let's go. No, I can't help but think that there's maybe something a little bit more to this scripture. So let's take a deeper look at it and see what we find. Read with me again in verse 35. That day when the evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Jesus has the idea to take the boat back over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And now this is actually the third time in the book of Mark that Jesus has mentioned the boat. In chapter 3 and verse 9, the crowds were getting closing in on Jesus and he says, you know what, we should get on a boat and go out into the lake a little bit farther. We need a boat. 
And the disciples, some of them being full-time fishermen, before they met Jesus, said, yeah, we like boats. We know where to get a boat. And so they get a boat. And at the beginning of Mark chapter 4, Jesus, the crowd is getting so big that Jesus says, you know, we should get, go out on the boat and get a little away from the shore. And he began teaching from the boat. He made it like a floating pulpit. Because I guess a barrier between the people you're speaking to is probably a good thing. So they get a boat. And now for the third time, after a long and exhausting day of teaching, Jesus steers them again towards the boat so that they can escape the demanding crowd. And then we get to verse 36. And verse 36 is one of the weirdest commentaries in the Bible. It, fe it features two odd things that don't really get explained. Are you ready? Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, and here's the first one, just as he was. In the boat. They took him along just as he was. That's kind of a weird phrase to me. Like, did Jesus want to go home and maybe freshen up and get a change of clothes? No. They took him along, just as he was, in the boat. So that one's interesting. And the next one, that there were other boats with him. I wondered about that. Is it like at this point, there's a little Jesus fleet that follows him around everywhere he goes? They don't mention these boats anywhere else. We don't know what happened to them. But as we read in the story, there's a storm that's about to come. Apparently, these boats are fine. So Mark 4.36 gives us a couple of interesting facts. And I don't have much in the way of explanation for them, other than these details are important to Mark. Then in verse 37, the storm strikes. A furious squall comes up and the waves break over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Now I'm not going to pretend to know a lot about meteorology, just because I play one on the radio, it doesn't mean I know a lot. And I'm not convinced that the local weatherman knows a lot about meteorology either. But here's what I know. And Greg, can you pull up that map? We spared no expense for today, okay? So here's the Sea of Galilee that they're on, okay? Now, the Sea of Galilee is about 700, oh, I'm sorry, it's about 700 feet below sea level. So here's the Mediterranean Sea. The Sea of Galilee is downhill about 700 feet. So it gets a little warm down there. Mount Hermon, which is about 30 miles to the north, rises to a height of about 9,200 feet. So there is a 10,000-foot difference between Mount Hermon and the Sea of Galilee. So the cold air from Mount Hermon comes down and meets the warm air from the Sea of Galilee, and these two collide, and they create these storms. And not only storms, they're 
what the meteorologists call superstorms. And they also create what meteorologists call clean air turbulence. You know, the kind that when you're on an airplane, the turbulence that you have, it's kind of like that. So not only are these storms really strong, they're kind of bumpy as well. And it's so much so that the disciples, who were seasoned fishermen and had spent all their time on the boat before they met Jesus on the Sea of Galilee, are afraid. So much so that they think they're about to die. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you did something and you thought in that instance you were no longer in control? I remember a time I was riding my bike and I'm flying down the hill, okay? That really big hill, the kind of hill that your parents say, don't do that. And so I'm standing there and it inevitably starts with the words, hey, y'all, watch this. Which is North Branch hillbilly slang for I'm about to do something really stupid. So I say to my brothers, watch this. And I take off on my bike. And I get going, and it's this really steep hill. And about a third of the way down, you know, I've got it. Everything's under control. And that front wheel is starting to bounce a little bit and sway to and four, but I've got this. And man, this is a blast. And then I go a little bit farther, and I'm white-knuckled on the handlebars. You know, I'm real, I've got the death grip on it. And, and everything's bouncing around, but I've got every, everything is under control. Until I hear the chain snap. And I realize I've lost my brake. I can't stop this. This is not a nice bike, you know. No wimpy handbrakes here. No cushy seats. No, I push back on the brake pedals and I skid to a sweet stop, you know. But that's not going to happen. And I realize that I had messed up big time. And my thoughts go from, I'm going to have a good time, to... Where's the softest place for me to crash this bike? So I'm looking all around for any kind of shrubbery or grass. But there's none of that on this kind of hill. So here are their disciples. At this moment, they realize that they're no longer in control of the situation. But here's the truth. They've never really been in control of this situation, right? But they thought they were. They realize they have no control, and Jesus is asleep. He's kind of like my dad on Saturday afternoon. He comes home from work, and he gets out of his dress pants and gets into nicer dress pants. 
okay? Which I never understood. Apparently, he liked dress pants. And so, he gets into his recliner, and after a few minutes, bam, REM sleep. You know that deep sleep, that I'm not getting up for anything sleep until I go to change the channel. He's like, I'm watching that. I'm like, there is no way you are watching that. But I'm not going to change the channel anymore. Jesus has had a long day of teaching, and there's a cushion in the boat, and he's asleep in the stern. And as soon as his head hits the pillow, bam, he's asleep. It's deep sleep. Because the storm hits, and he's still sleeping. But the disciples decide to wake him up. And I like to think about this moment in the story. How did they decide who was going to wake him up? It's kind of like the way my brothers and I decided who was going to wake up mom and dad when things were out of control in the house. We played paper, rock, and scissors. I like to think maybe the disciples did something similar. And I wonder if the loser was the one that had to go and wake Jesus up. I don't want to speculate too much about it, but I can picture Philip walking up to Jesus gently, shaking Jesus' shoulder and saying, sorry to bother you, Jesus, but there's some weather going on. And some of the other disciples, they're, they're frightened. I'm not. I'm good. But apparently it's getting bad out there. I mean, you don't have to do it right now, right now. But they are worried out there. You know how Bartholomew gets. You may want to do something about this. No, that's not what it says. They're scared. They wake him up. Jesus, we need your help now. Get up. And in the midst of their fear and their feelings of being out of control, they give voice to the question that I'm not sure if it had been any other situation, they would have voiced it out loud. They said, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Perhaps you felt like this, that the storms of your life are wreaking havoc on you and everything is beyond your control and you feel like you're about to go under and God is nowhere to be found. He's absent or worse yet, he's like a captain asleep at the wheel or asleep in the storm. God, my marriage is falling apart. God, my child is sick. God, my child is off the rails. God, I've lost my job. God, I'm so alone. God, I miss my wife so much. Where are you, God? Don't you care if I drown? Ask God any question. Any question. But not do you care 
I mean, Jesus is in the boat with them because he cares. The only reason he can be in the boat is because God became flesh so that he could live with them and die for them because he cares. Ask him any question, but not do you care. But the storm has so filled their minds that it has come between them and the assurance of Christ's love for them. Not only that, remember in verse 35, Jesus had already told them the plan. Get in the boat. Let's go over to the other side. Let us go to the other side. Jesus has already told them the plan. He didn't say, get in the boat and let's see if we can survive a drowning. He told them what was going to happen. Let us go to the other side. We are going to the other side. You see, the storm was so bad and they felt so out of control. They were so afraid that they not only doubted Christ's love for them, they doubted to take him at his word. And sometimes the storm in our lives can be so bad that we not only doubt that God cares for us, we stop living in the reality of his word. And then there's the big reveal. Jesus got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Be quiet. Be still. The wind died down and it was completely calm. Jesus calmed the storm. He speaks to the wave. Jesus stands and speaks to them directly. Be quiet. Be still. No magic. No summoning. Just simple commands. And the storm obeys. The wind died down and it was completely calm. The storm doesn't just stop in midair, it settles as well. And then he said to his disciples in verse 40, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? The question seems so heavy handed, almost unfair. What do you mean, why are we afraid? We're afraid because we're about to drown. We're about to go under, and we had to wake you up. It's obvious you don't care, because if you did, then you wouldn't let the storm come in the first place. You know, a lot of times we read stories like this, where Jesus and the disciples interact with each other. They're not getting along, and we shake our heads sometimes in disbelief. But this is one of the stories where we look at the disciples and we go, you know, I can kind of sympathize with where they're at. God, why did you even let the storm happen? And this is where it's so important for us to remember how the disciples came to be in the storm in the first place. They're not in the storm because they sinned. They're not in the storm because they did something to put themselves in a bad situation. They didn't behave irresponsibly. That's not why they're in the storm. They're in the storm precisely because they obeyed Jesus. He said, get in the boat. 
We're going to go over to the other side. And they said, yes, let's get in the boat. And immediately, they're in a storm. God is a God who leads people into storms. Jesus' is, Jesus is question, though, has behind it a simple truth, but the disciples' premise was wrong. You should know this. I do allow ones that I love to go through storms, but this should not have swamped your faith, though, because you had no reason to panic. Because just as Jesus' power is unbounded, so is his love, and so is his wisdom. Let me say that again. Just as Jesus' power, say power, is unbounded, so is his love, say love, and so is his wisdom, say wisdom. All right, here's the problem. Too often, though, we really don't understand any of these three things. His power, his love, or his wisdom. All three of them unbounded. We struggle to understand them. So we ask questions like, why did you even let this storm happen? Elizabeth Elliot says, if God is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. And I will find rest nowhere but in his will. And that will is necessarily, infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notion of what he is up to. If God is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere but in his will. And that will is necessarily, infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. Did you hear it? God is so bigger than I can understand. And I have to accept that. That when the storms of life come, there's a reason for them. So, where does that lead us? So how can we face the storms in our life? I think it's because we have something the disciples don't have or didn't have yet. We have a resource that allows us to be calm when the storm is raging all around us so that we can go through the storms of life. So what is that resource? I think the secret to the meaning of this passage and the secret that Mark is trying to get across for us, to us, is that Mark has deliberately laid out this passage, this incident, using, the language, using a language that is identical and certainly parallel to the language of the famous account in the book of Jonah in Jonah chapter 1. And if you compare these two, both Jesus and Jonah are out on a boat. Both Jesus and Jonas's boat is overtaken by a storm. And the description of the storm is almost identical. Both Jesus and Jonah are asleep during the storm. The sailors come to the sleeper and say, we are perishing. 
They even use the same Greek word, apolemai. So they're out on a boat. They're asleep in the boat. They're asleep during a storm. The sailors come and say, we're perishing, do something. There's a miraculous intervention by God and the sea is calm. In both instances, we read that the sailors were even more terrified than they were during the storm. So we, what we have here are almost identical stories. But there's one difference, though. There's one little difference between the story of Jesus in the storm and the story of Jonah in the storm. Jonah says to the sailors, there is only one thing to do. If I perish, you will survive. If I die, you will live. And then they throw him in. So you think to yourself, yeah, that's different. That's the one difference between the two stories. Where is it? If we take a look back, I think Mark is trying to get across the fact that these stories aren't different at all. Because in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus Christ says, I am the true Jonah. A greater than Jonah is here. And he is referring to himself. I am the true Jonah. What does he mean by that? He means this. He calmed the storm and the wind and the waves and saved his disciples. But Jesus one day is going to calm all storms. He's going to still all waves. He's going to destroy destruction. He is going to break brokenness. He is going to kill death. All storms are going to be gone. He is going to still all storms for us. That's what he promises us. That's what the kingdom of God means. How can he do that? Well, here's how he can do that. He can do that because when he was on the cross, he was thrown into the ultimate storm. He was thrown into the ultimate waves, the waves of sin and death. Jesus was thrown into the only storm that can actually sink you and I. And that is the debt we owe for our wrongdoing. Jesus Christ turned his face into the ultimate storm of eternal justice. He bowed his head and he went into that storm for our sake. And he didn't even flinch. He was demolished on the cross. And he paid for our sins. And to the degree that you see him doing that, him bowing his head and going head straight first into that storm. And that, how you get that burned into the center of your being, then you will know that he cares for you. And then you'll never say, Lord, don't you care? Because you know he does. 
And if you can see that he did not abandon you during the ultimate storm, what makes you think that he would ever abandon you during these little storms of life, no matter how big or small? To the degree that you understand this, you can sing the old hymn written by John Newton many years ago. His love in times past forbids me to think. He'll leave me at last in troubles to sink. By prayer let me wrestle that he will perform. With Christ in the vessel, I can smile at the storm. Look again in verse 41. They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. The storm is gone, and the disciples go from being afraid to being terrified. In ancient cultures, it was universally accepted that the power of sea could only be controlled by the power of God. And in this moment, when Christ stands up and speaks to the storm, and it obeys. These men have a front row seat. To witness the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ over creation on full display. The waves that heard the voice of their Lord in Genesis 1, when he told them to gather and let dry land appear, and they obey then, now hear the voice And they obey now. That the God of creation is in the boat with them, speaking to the wind, speaking to the waves. And by his actions, Jesus is not saying that he is merely someone who has power. He is saying that he is power itself. John Dalbert Acton, famous saying, power tends to corrupt, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. But there is something very different about Jesus and his power. Interestingly, Jesus calms the natural storm, but he, tell, he tells the wind and the waves to die down. He calms the natural storm, but he creates the spiritual storm in the life of those that he has just saved. Because now they have to, requ- they have to wrestle with this question. Who is this guy? Because as Tim Keller put it, Jesus was as unmanageable as the storm itself. The storm had immense power and they couldn't control it. Jesus has infinitely more power and they have even less control over him. So they go from being afraid to being terrified. They're terrified by the fact that they don't have control over him. And quite frankly, so am I. And I think so are most of you. Because most of us want a God who can do anything, but we want him to do what we want, when we want it. But you know what's interesting? They brought Jesus as he was into the boat. But now they're seeing Jesus just as he is. You see, the difference in the power is that they realize 
The difference is you see the power. They realize that they don't have control over the weather and they don't have power over him and that's scary. And power that corrupts is scary. But the difference between the storm and Jesus is that the storm doesn't love you. But Jesus does. That's the gospel. You see, it's not as simple as Jesus calms the storm and he can calm the storm in your life. He can definitely do that. But what I need you to know is that when you see the storms in life, when you go through the storms, I need you to see who it is that is their master. The difference between the storm and Jesus is that the storm doesn't love you. The storm isn't for you, but Jesus is. And when Jesus asked them if they still don't have faith, it's not as much a critique of their will to believe. They want to believe. They got into the boat. They obeyed. Rather, it is a call for them to understand that their faith, or to understand their faith, not in the terms of their own strength, but in the terms of the object of their faith. The power of faith is not, not, not in the one who believes. It is in the one that you believe in. And in some ways, the real miracle of this story is not simply Jesus calming the storm around the disciples, but Jesus calming the disciples in the midst of the storm. Jesus is asking them, if you know who I am, if you know that I love you, why would you ever be afraid that I don't care for you? I'm reminded of a quote by Brian Zahn, and it goes like this, Jesus didn't come to change God's mind about us. He came to change our mind about God. God Almighty loves you and chooses you. He will never leave you or forsake you, even when it's storming all around. And when you're in the storm, know that Jesus is the king of all and the ruler of all nature. And the storm reminds us of who is really in control. And one day, he is going to calm all storms, all of them. The waves will stop. The winds will stop. And we will witness the awesome, terrifying, inescapable, and uncontrollable power of God. And in that moment, we will be asked if we trust that just as he is, He loves us just as we are. And that will make all the difference. Let's pray. God, our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your love and grace and mercy. I thank you that you have faced every storm for us, including the storm that we have no power to overcome on our own. Father, we simply cannot 
weather the storm on our own strength. We can do good for a while, but in the end, we will lose out. And I am so thankful that you face the ultimate storm for us. But because you did that, all the storms of our life, big, little, medium, we know that you are their master. So Father, we don't have to struggle against the storms of our lives. We can simply rest in the assurance that you are in control. So Father, I pray if anyone is struggling this day with the storms of their lives, they feel that their life is out of control and they just ask for a measure of your spirit upon them. That they can look at the storm and look at you and say, that is their master. Father, I pray that each one here is anointed with your grace. Father, just simply continue to watch over us and protect us. So that we can have the assurance that in the storms of this life we can look them, look at them and say, my God is in control. We thank you for that blessed assurance. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.